Welcome to Water for Fighting, where I discuss the past, present, and future of water in Florida with the people who make it happen. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. I've spent over 20 years working with and getting to know the people who've made water their life's work. And I created this podcast to allow you, the listener, to get to know them as well. Today, it's my pleasure to introduce a very special guest, Frank Bernardino. Frank is one of the top water policy and budget experts in the state of Florida. He was born to Cuban distance in Miami, Florida, but he's lived in Mexico, Venezuela, and Colombia in his younger years. He's a biologist by training, but he has spent most of his nearly 40-year career as a water and environmental resource advocate for state and local governments, as well as the private sector. Frank also holds the distinction of being a direct descendant of Florida's original snowbird, Ponce de Leon. Oh, and did I mention that he happens to be one of my partners at Anfield Consulting. As usual, we'll join this conversation in progress. Talk about the beginning of what the wetland mitigation program was how it was designed. You were a big part of that. So the first wetland mitigation uh, initiatives in the state, and at the time they weren't called wetland mitigation banks, but the first time that financial resources being derived from development entities were directed towards the management of lands occurred through the establishments of what's known in the mitigation world as ROMAs, regional offsite mitigation areas. These are different local governments within the state of Florida who had land, oftentimes parkland owned by those local governments that was in need of active management, but they did not have the funding for it, who said, well, this is great. We've got a need, a financial need. Here's an entity that's got to do something to improve the environment. Let's put those two concepts together. And so a number of local governments, including Miami-Dade County, I know Broward and Palm Beach County did the same, uh, developed uh, different banks, if you will, processes by which uh, developers were allowed to contribute towards the improvement of a specific property that was under the control and ownership of that local government. How are the credits, as, as we know them now, were they the same then or did we call them something else? Were, what was the basis for establishing what that was in terms of a fair exchange? That's a great question because I, I don't recollect us ever using the term credit. I remember that the land managers for, let's say, a piece of park land had an estimate of how much it would cost to manage an acre of land. And so without doing a lot of in-depth measurement about the amount of habitat, uh, you know, you often hear the term lift or, or, or how much uh, um, habitat function is lost. Well, we did was very simple. If you're going to take out five acres of wetlands, then we want you to pay for the management of five acres of wetlands at a local park. Um, it was later in the, that process that the concepts of habitat suitability indices uh, and other uh, measurement tools were developed by the regulatory agencies at the federal, state, and local level that allowed a much more rigorous examination of the actual impact. It'll, so what, yeah, yeah. yeah, I apologize for interrupting there. What? So when did the term UMAM come into play? First, what's a UMAM? And then to the the best of your recollection, when did that when did that come into the scene then? Yeah, it's UMAM is is a is a methodology by which uh, you can assess the habitat quality of an acre of wetland. Um, back in the day, we there were models again that were developed that were species specific. So what what we did in the early stages is scientists put together basically a a, a, a format or a program that said 
Let's pick one wading bird species. That wading bird species will be an indicator of an entire suite of species. And so if we know that species and understand it well, and we know what the type of habitat that it likes to forage in, the kind of habitat that it likes to nest in, um, and we understand those physical characteristics, then we can look at any one piece of property and see how well does it measure up against what would be an optimal habitat for the proliferation of that species. And so based on that calculation, you said this, this uh, property is only, uh, only contains half of the features that would be perfect for this wading bird species. So if you undertook these other actions and you created the habitat structure and the hydrologic regime under which we know they optimize, then you would get the lift to an entire credit. So the entire concept of the credit came about during the same time that these models were developed. And, and for each different species, each representative species, you would then be able to go out and measure. And so when you looked at a piece of property in the early days, you would have a reptile species that was representative of that suite of animals, uh, a wading bird species that was representative of that suite of animals, a mammal species that was representative of the, the ones that would typically occur in that habitat. And you would put all that together to decide how much what the loss was going to be, how much habitat function you were going to lose, and therefore how much you had to make up. And so just for the, the listeners sake, like the UMAM is the Uniform Mitigation Assessment Method that Frank was just talking about. So, so now you have a new way of looking at these places, judging it, determining um, the kind of, as you say, lift that one gets from the, these impacts caused. Between, somewhere between then and now, that became controversial. The idea was no net loss of, of wetlands. However, the function of some of those mitigated wetlands, even I think the way the UMAM was structured uh, or the methodology came into question. Tell me about some of the problems there and then how we got to where we are now, which seems to be, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, that seems to be uh, a better system. Well, Two things happened. Uh, with regard to the methodologies themselves, uh, there were different models and over time the models were improved upon the information that was used to actually assess the value of the wetland uh, became more sophisticated and as more studies were completed in the field, better data was used to support the models that were driving these decisions. Uh, from the very get-go, though, it, it was always very controversial that you would use mitigation to allow an impact that some felt should never take place. And so one of the first things that the government did in general, it was true in the federal government, state and local government, is we, we, we went through an avoidance minimization test. Can we avoid the impact? Is there another place where this activity can take place? Must it take place here? And if this is the only place where this activity can take place, is there a way that we can reduce the footprint of whatever it is that's going to be built in order to minimize the impact? And so that was the first attempt to, to say, we can't just carte blanche approved anything that comes across the desk of a regulator. Uh, one of the things that was interesting and important step uh, in the development and how uh, wetland mitigation evolved was uh, a push by the private mitigation bankers, those entrepreneurial entities that entered the market, to basically force the local governments out of the game. Um, prior to that, as I indicated, these regional offsite mitigation areas 
uh, were the tools that the local governments preferred because most of the cash uh, that was generated from the development action was used to manage the resource that was controlled and owned by the local government. But as you can well imagine, if you're doing a mitigation project on land that the public already paid for using public employees to design and or supervise the implementation of the project, obviously on a cost per unit basis, it cannot, a private sector entity who has to buy a piece of property and hire private sector people along, they can't compete. And so the legislature acknowledged that and basically drove the local governments out of the game, leaving basically the system that in large part we have today, which is we have mitigation banks that are privately held uh, all over the state and developers, uh, anybody who's going to impact the resource can attempt to avail themselves of the, the, the various uh, banks, no matter where they are. They, there is a requirement that the, the type of bank credit that you purchase be related to the type of impact that you're creating, meaning that if you're impacting a coastal habitat, the, the type of credits that you should be buying are coastal habitat restoration projects in the same region and not going from coastal to freshwater or freshwater to coastal. Um, but that's largely the system that is in place today. Did did Roma, were Romas held to that same standard, uh, impact for impact? So you have a coastal versus inland. Were they held to the same that same standard? In the early stages, we never even talked about it, to be honest. Um, I, I can't sit here and swear that there wasn't one uh, freshwater project that wasn't offset in the coast, but it didn't take us long for us to realize, for example, in Miami-Dade County, that the mangrove resources of the county were, were in short supply and being depleted. Mm. And so there was definitely an interest by our coastal scientists to see whatever mitigation occurred occur on the coast. Do you remember uh, offhand about what year the first mitigation, the first private mitigation banks showed up? Um, I do not off the top of my head. If, if I were guessing, I would say it was in the uh, mid-90s, uh, 93, 4, 5. So getting back to the, the, the park before, and we had the same policy at the Northwest Florida District, which is we never, whether it be wetlands mitigation, timber management, anything else, we don't want to be putting ourselves in a position to compete with the private sector. Uh, we're mitigators of last resort. We like, you know, we liked being there. However, the rest of the state is not Northwest Florida. Northwest Florida has, you know, enormous gaps, you know, where private uh, mitigation banks don't exist, which forces them into the market. You have fewer people, 1.4 million people about and that kind of 16 county area. But when you look at places that you and I have heard about recently in Northeast Florida and Central Florida, and certainly there's, you know, that, that's got to occur in, in Southeast and Southwest Florida, there's the, the realization that there may not be enough credits for the development that's going on, which creates an issue, you know, for these folks. And some have suggested that maybe that answer lies in, uh, public lands, whether it be the water management district itself or or somewhere else. Can you talk a little bit about that? That point is is true. And it goes back to what I said earlier. My my personal philosophy of natural resources management is that we, we owe it to the resource to understand A, that our financial capacity is limited and will continue to be limited for the foreseeable future. I don't see anything on the horizon that's going to change that that 
paradigm. Uh, and so therefore, can we holistically look at the system and say, okay, in the light that we have a limited resource, where should we spend our dollars first? I have often maintained that sometimes that is in buying more land and buffering your preserve, your the areas that you value the most from impacts. Uh, but sometimes that is realizing that the areas that you've already invested in that are the gems of the resource are not being properly managed. Or I, I don't want to suggest that somebody's not doing their job, that we don't have the resources to manage them the way that we do. And so if you have a limited amount of money, are we better off not spending the money to protect the heart of the system rather than worrying about adding to its outer edges? I often make the comparison to, to a patient. If you look at it as an organism, if you know that the patient is, has a heart problem or a kidney problem or a liver problem, you know, are you going to spend the money addressing those issues or are you going to spend the money doing cosmetic surgery? One, one of the things that um, frustrates me at time about our policy area and arena is that there, there seems to be very little innovation. But that, by that, I don't mean that there aren't folks out there that are working very hard to find, for example, new technologies to deal with blue-green algae. Um, and and it, it's not science-driven innovation. It's policy-driven innovation. Uh, people have done things the same way for a very long time, and it's really difficult to put their heads around looking at it and perhaps approaching it a different way. I'll give you an example. I don't understand for the life of me why there is such a, a total resistance in the water sector, not just the uh, environmental restoration. This isn't a water management district problem, but also a utility problem to allow the private sector to pay a, a bigger play a bigger role in helping to achieve and build the projects that we need. In the transportation arena, public-private partnerships occur all the time. Companies are given the ability to go in and put in a road, and basically it's a turkey situation. They manage the project, they build the project, they, they enter into contracts that place them at risk if they fail to deliver the projects uh, at certain quality and by certain time. In the water world, we don't even want to have that conversation. And so one of the things that I believe uh, that we need to do as a state is look at our building blocks, our foundations, and, and determine whether or not those still hold. A long, long time ago, when the, the people that forged the model water code um, uh, you know, put that together, it was what the state needed at the time. And they decided that the role of the water management district should be water resource management and the role of the local government should be water supply. But now we find ourselves with regional water shortages all over the state and, and the districts pushing the local governments to go further and further afield and become more and more creative to find alternative ways to meet the future demand. I think that there's a way to perhaps look at whether or not there's a better role for the water management districts than one that is a, uh, a driver of local cooperative uh, project implementation and development, maybe from a resource management standpoint, since they are the ones ultimately know that know how much water is available, where it is available, and when it is available, perhaps they could play a role in putting together bigger projects uh, and building the regional projects and then allocating that water to the local governments in the region based upon their needs. Let's pause for a second there because I want to rewind a bit. Uh, that's 2023, 
Frank Bernardino. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's rewind. Let's rewind you back to 2003, Frank Bernardino. Okay. And because the exact thing that you're you're talking about, there 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 was no inkling of it at all prior to 2003, 2004, uh, nearly anywhere. I mean, there was there were discussions about hey, we're you know we've got to deal with alternative water supplies. Hey, we've got you know these surface water improvement and management plans. That had been in statute for what, four or five years by then, uh, actually longer than that, um, 14, 15 years by then. And we've got to get these these things done for for all these purposes. But you get to 2004 and you have, for the first time, a knockdown, drag out. We're, you know, we're going to work through this issue. And the end result was, or the, you know, the beginning of that is uh, Senator Paula Dockery. And I was uh, in those rooms as a as an analyst working for Governor Bush, and you were in there working very closely with her. And you in at the end of that session, you have Senate Bill 444. I think everybody just refers to it as Senate Bill 444, even though there've been many many Senate Bill 444s since then. But it's the Water Protection Sustainability Program and Trust Fund. And the Trust Fund was the the big part, right? Right. Uh, the program was how do you how do you split up these dollars and how you apportion it based on uh, the program that you were looking at you know that was a part of that. You were really close to Paula in those days. You were in those rooms. I'm sure they were in rooms that I was not in. Get us caught up to that because before we get to the end, which is like, hey, we're, these are the things that we still need to do. Let's talk about that that next step, which is a huge one, right? Absolutely. Uh, that that was during the time that I was working with the South Florida Water Management District, and, and Henry Dean was our executive director. And, um, you know, one of the wonderful things about working with Henry was that he, he let us use our God-given talents to think our way through complex issues. Um, there certainly were a lot of interesting policy conversations that were had in private, but when it came to, to seeing how far we could move the football, he really encouraged us to, to uh, think outside of the box, as the people like to say, and and uh, pursue, identify, and pursue new ideas, and so you know, you know that Henry Dean was the our very first guest on here. He beat you out um, by a couple <laughs> episodes. I had someone who listened to the podcast call me and say, I, "I wish that I'd worked for Henry Dean. I wish I worked for someone like that." Uh, and and I guess what you saying that kind of accentuates that, which is all the things that he, you know, the stories that he told uh, with with me kind of uh, accentuated the idea that he he really knew what he was doing and he knew how to get the best out of other folks. And so I don't want, I apologize for interrupting, but I thought, you know, that would be, you would be interested in hearing about that. No, absolutely. Henry, Henry was one of those people that um, obviously had an enormous impact on my career and my personal life. And, and I love Henry and he's, he's, I consider him to stay to be a very, very close and dear friend. It was interesting because it didn't start that way. And, and what I mean by that, yeah, it's a true story. So, and I don't even know that Henry knows this, but after um, there were, had been a couple of changes in the executive directorship of the South Florida Water Management District, uh, Governor Bush took office uh, he appointed a very competent governing board, uh, f- you know, full of some really charismatic and forward-thinking individuals. 
And uh, they went on a search to figure out who was going to be the executive director of the water management district. Henry, at the time, had been the executive director of the St. John's River Water Management District. And I always found it interesting that every time that we went to a meeting of the executive directors and the lobbyists for the various water management districts, here was Henry Dean, who was a larger-than-life person in the room, and everybody deferred to him, uh, you know, as probably the the craftiest and smartest policy person in this area. And not to say that he wasn't, but I always looked around the room and said, well, there are other capable people here. Why are we ceding the mic to him? And it really came to a head, and and it was at the point where I uh, uh, cared for Henry the least, one year when the legislature was convening, and as you know, the, the first year of the two-year cycle, they always have briefings and they educate the new members. Mm-hmm. And they asked Henry Dean to come and give a presentation on Everglades restoration. And I'm sitting there going <laughs> to myself, what in God's earth does the executive director of the St. John's River Water Management District know and have to say about Everglades restoration? <laughs> it is not his area. And as a scientist at the time, uh, a practicing scientist that I was, who had you know spent a good bit of my childhood around the Everglades and had done research and published research on the Everglades, I didn't consider myself the foremost authority. But but he any time that we had an Everglades meeting, Henry Dean was not in the in the room. And here he was the person providing the briefing for the Senate Natural Resources Committee on the Everglades, (laughs) the history of the Everglades and what needed to be done in the Everglades. And I walked away from that saying, who in God's earth does this man think he is? Well, come to find out a short time later that he was going to be our next executive director. (laughs) And he was always nice to me personally and on the private. And so I was a little skeptical when when Henry joined the team. Uh, But it didn't take long for me to realize, because at the time I did not know his very long history with the state of Florida, going back to the Askew administration and how involved he had been in some, basically getting most of the state's environmental programs off the ground to where I realized, okay, yeah, he is all that. And I, as a young Turk, (laughs) need to keep my mouth shut and be a little bit more appreciative that I get an opportunity to work with somebody like him. And, and, and I want to say we accomplished a lot of things uh, during his time. We probably could have done more, uh, but for uh, the, the, that, that stage of Everglades restoration really brought on was, was the burgeoning of a lot of litigation, uh, a lot of infighting between the agencies and the environmental groups. And, you know, famously, you know, now everybody's focused on the EAA reservoir, but during the uh, Jeb administration, under the leadership of Henry Dean, we launched the Accelerate program to try to get right. the eight biggest projects bit, built. And one of the first ones was the, and then was called the A1 Reservoir, uh, which is basically at the same place where the EAA Reservoir is now the crown jewel of mm-hmm. Everglades restoration today, uh, according to some. Um, and we tried to build a reservoir and we were sued. And the lawsuit stopped the construction. And the company that had gone onto the site and had begun the construction of the property, actually had to get paid tens of millions of dollars to demobilize and abandon that project. Um, but it wasn't for the fact that Henry didn't have all the passion and, and it was a great time to work. And uh, yes, if, you were, uh, if you're a state employee and you work in the water resources area and you're listening to this, I'm sure you would have loved to have worked for Henry Dean. Talk a little bit more about that. The SERP to accelerate, it was a frustration of mine. I'm watching... Uh, enormous budgets uh, being passed, 
uh, in the state legislature. I'm seeing uh, half-stepping by our quote finger partners uh, and the federal government at the time. And the entire time I'm thinking there's a, there's a better way to spend this money on places that also have have issues and then accelerate pops out but it doesn't it doesn't really change anything did it in terms of the pace because of because of those reasons was it as frustrating for for y'all at the South Florida Water Management District as it was for someone watching from the outside and that was you know essentially me watching from the outside wishing that either that worked or we that we cut bait and go do something else no it it, it was frustrating um you know, I guess different folks that have worked in Everglades restoration for a very long time or have been in the sphere of Everglades restoration may have different recollections of how it all came about. Uh, but uh, you're right, in, in, in 2000, uh, the Comprehensive Everglades Restoration Plan was passed to much fanfare. Um, this agreement uh, to build this, these 60-some uh, projects and, and um at the tune of about $8 billion, and it would be cost-shared between the state and the federal government. And in the early stages, it was envisioned that the local share would be mostly the acquisition of the properties where projects would eventually be built by the Corps of Engineers. Uh, but even you know by the early 2000s, that, that process began to drag uh, for many different reasons. And uh, a couple of things happened that were significant at the time. Um, one is the, the, the Jeb administration is, is an interesting one in the history of natural resources management because we went from being a uh, state that mostly relied on borrowing of money, the P2000 program uh, is an example of that, mm-hmm. where we borrowed money to advance environmental restoration programs. But during the years that Jeb was in office, the revenue picture of the state changed significantly enough that by the time his second administration came about, most of the environmental programs we were paying for in cash. I think many, many people forget that, right. that, that when we went from P2000 to Florida forever, uh, during that window, we stopped borrowing money and we began to pay for Florida forever the $300 million in cash. Right. But one of the things that was interesting is that the Everglades program and the South Florida Water Management District was given the authority to borrow money to accelerate those projects. So one of the things that people don't think about when they think about the Accelerate program is, yes, the, the, Jeb challenged the Water Management District to, uh, to find, and I think it was you know, seven or eight projects, Accelerate, you know, just became the tagline. And so that's why it became eight projects. And I think originally the list was shorter, but they landed on eight. Governor Bush at the time said, you know, I want to make sure that you have the financial resources to get it done. So he gave the agency the authority to borrow money in order to implement those projects. Again, the state wasn't using its credit because it was paying for everything in cash, and that created room under the constitutional cap for another entity of the state to borrow, and, and South Florida was given an allocation and said, yes, you may borrow this amount of money to get that How much done. is that? If memory serves, I think, uh, the the bond proceeds plus debt service over the years are something like $3 billion, $2, 3000000000 billion. Is that about right? Yep. Let me let me ask you but, a question. But on that point, yeah, go ahead. because that's one of the significant things that has changed that, to some degree, we can say has impacted the speed at which Everglades restoration has been undertaken. 
for more than a decade now, we eat what we kill. We have not borrowed money to build Everglades projects or to advance the Everglades program in a very, very long time. The Accelerate program was the last right. time that the state embraced that notion. And when that program was for the most part abandoned, the state never, the, the, the South Florida Water Management District did not issue any or pursue the issuance of any more bonds or borrow any more money. So literally, we grow based on what we can afford to pay based on our revenues. Do you, do you think that was, from your, from your position, a, a tactical error on the part of Governor Bush, who was obviously, he wanted to accomplish SERP. He wanted to see uh, accelerate uh, what I, I eventually called Acceler 12, which ended up being, I think, 12 projects instead of the eight. He wanted them to be successful, but because he was paying for things in cash, that meant that when the money stopped flowing as well as it did in those in those handful of years, that it became easy to start lopping things off and trying and then trying to figure out how to backfill from that point becomes harder because the economy's not doing quite as well. You go into to yeah. the, uh, what do you think about what do you think about that? So I, I, I wouldn't blame the governor for this reason. I think that two things were true at the time. Um, he was pushing us to get as much work done as aggressively as we could get it done. Yes, with the resources that we had available, but we were also doing something for the first time. The South Florida Water Management District, prior to SERP, did not have a history of building multi-hundred million dollar projects. Mm. And so the agency was going through a growing period of trying to say, okay, we've never done this before. We may not have internally the skills to do this. Um, so how do, how do we do this? How do we get this program off the ground? And I remember the discussions of the governing board about whether or not you did um, – you know, the engineers that may hear this interview would, would identify whether you did CMAR projects, construction management at risk, where you brought in somebody and said, OK, we're going to give you the ability to design, construct, build the project, or whether or not those different elements were going to be divided among various companies so that everybody could keep an eye on what everybody else was doing to mm -hmm. make sure that, you know, we were being as efficient as we could and the right things were happening. So I think that the confluence of both uh, the, the newness of the scale of the challenge that the agency was facing, uh, uh, coupled with the changing times in terms of the revenue that was available, was the one that led to the pace at which we got out of the gate. But certainly when the, legis when, uh, the South Florida Water Management District, the board at the time, made the decision to do the A1 reservoir as its first project aggressively that they were going to pursue, and that led to a lawsuit that brought that project to a halt that really, you know, had a chilling effect on the program as a whole. And then, unfortunately, nobody's fault. You know, you fast forward three, four years right. and we get into the recession of seven and eight and all of the water resources programs of the state here in, in Tallahassee, as well right. as uh, around the state and the water management districts uh, were cut. And, right, and so that, that unavoidably, unavoidably so. Absolutely. So, so really, it, it it was the it really was, and and Henry talked about that when uh, when we sat down. It really was the lawsuits at the at the time. You you have uh, the political will behind you. You have the the money to get it going and accomplish it in short order. Why why were the lawsuits uh, coming forward at, at that time? 
tell me about tell me about the nature of them, please. The fight over the A1 reservoir broke out about how the water that was going to be captured by the reservoir was going to be used. For what purpose was it going to be used? And the environmental community wanted uh, certain assurances that the water captured by the reservoir would be reserved for some environmental purpose at some undetermined time in the future, while the agency took the more neutral role of saying, you know, water that's available in the system will be allocated and, and, and apportioned um, as the needs arise during, during the time. Um, and so it, the, the battle really was about what happens with this once it's built and what happens with the water once it's, it's uh, collected in this facility that, that led to that lawsuit that stopped the A1. It seems to me, like non-attorney like you, layman, looking at that and saying, uh, does it, doesn't one sue after the the project exists? If you know that it's going to have some environmental benefit and it's you know, it's not all water supply or whatever is the the concern was, it and seems it, it, it seems like tactically, why why not wait you know until after it's built and argue over its apportionment and the 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 control schedule. Well, yes and no. I mean, the th- same thing is happening now, right? I mean, uh, just uh, today, as a matter of fact, if I'm not mistaken, there was uh, there's a hearing that's taking place for summary judgment uh, by parties in the Lower East Coast that are concerned because the uh, conversations and um, everything that the Corps of Engineers and uh, the Water Management District have said about how the EAA reservoir will be operated once it is up and running um, it will not include or uh, abide by the savings clause. And the savings clause is, is uh, for the listeners that are not aware of it, when the SERP was originally authorized, um, everyone was concerned that the projects, these enormous reservoirs that were going to be built, were going to be allocated water in a basin where there is a shortage. Right For, for quite some time now, the Lower East Coast has been uh, a water use cautionary, and what that basically means is that uh, the, the the regional water managers, the South Florida Water Management District, said, "Look, we cannot give another drop of groundwater in in Southern Palm Beach, Broward, or, or Miami Dade counties for urban use or agricultural use, because pulling out that water out of the aquifer will adversely impact water levels in the Everglades." And so if essentially the amount of water that a utility or, or a development or agricultural industry uh, interest uh, in that region has been frozen. And anybody who wants new water has got to get alternative water supply. Well, when the SERP was authorized in 2000, all of the water users at the time said, wait a minute. The water that's going to be captured by these projects, where does that fit into this equation? Because Florida water law currently says that an existing legal user, somebody who has water allocated to them now, right. comes first. But if you take water off the top, if you say that water is not part of the equation anymore, then it's entirely possible that the allocations that have been made to users in the Lower East Coast may not be met. And so even though I agree with you, it would make sense that you would fight about who gets to use the water after the facility is built. As we saw then and we're seeing now, folks want to know. So before I agree to you building that facility, I want to know where do I stand once it's built. And in, in that case, it was the water management district 
not evading, but not being willing to commit specifically where the water was going to go that led to the lawsuits. And in this case, it's the Water Management District and the, and the uh, Army Corps of Engineers telling the existing legal users we, we're, how we operate this facility is not going to take into account what commitments have been made to you. So if in the future the water taken up by this reservoir adversely impacts you, you know, we'll deal with it down the road and perhaps have to adjust your permits. But to your point, that's that's what that's that same stumbling block. It's funny, you know, here we are 20 years later and the issues are the same. If only the court taken that that position when allocating water out of Lake Lanier and in the system, the the ACF system, um, I'm being uh, I'm being that's another that is another podcast, um, but uh, but annoying nonetheless. So for those for those who don't know, Brett's talking about the the, the water wars between Georgia, uh, Alabama and Florida uh, over water coming down the the Apalachicola River. That's right. That's a that's a whole that's a whole hour. Um, and I'm, we've got we've got uh, former general counsel from the Department of Environmental Protection. Fred Ashour coming in, you know, he was the uh, the manager of the of the trial uh, for that the most recent iteration of the of the Supreme Court case, and and so he and I he and I will go through it uh, at length. We're going to get personal a little bit because I want people to know a little bit more about about you. You're you're born in Miami, I think I mentioned that in uh, in the intro, but I want to hear more about you growing up in places like Central and South America. Walk me through a little bit of that. Yeah, it was crazy. My my father um, was a um, an accountant, uh, and he worked for the firm of Pete Mowick Mitchell and Company, uh, which I think has evolved in today as KPMG, if I'm not mistaken. I could be wrong about that, but I think I'm right. And um, he was one of these people who believed that the fastest path to career growth was by accepting the assignments that nobody else wanted. And so whenever they said, we need a volunteer to go to Timbuktu, (laughs) he would be the first to raise his hand and my family would soon be packing our bags and going there. (laughs) And so that's how um, I I was born in Miami, like you said, the first year, year and a half of my life. I was in Jacksonville while he was uh, being groomed uh, uh, by uh, Pete Maurick uh, and their offices there. And then he took an assignment in Venezuela in Caracas. And so we went to Caracas. And from that time uh, until high school, we, I, I can identify a lot with military brats because I think one time my sisters and I added it up and I think we had been to something like 13 schools uh, between um, when we started kindergarten all the way through eighth grade. So we moved, wow. from, we moved from Caracas to Miami to Guadalajara to Mexico City, back to Miami, back to Caracas, back to Miami back to uh, down to Bogota, Colombia, and then back to Miami, uh, where I eventually ended up going to high school. So it was it was crazy, but a good way to grow up. I mean, I, I think I'm very appreciative for the fact that growing up in, in countries where there is such a difference in economic strata of the of the society, uh, you really come to appreciate what it's like to have certain things. And and your poverty hits you, you know, like a two by four in the forehead. Mm. And so, you know, you develop for an appreciation of the hardships that other people feel and, and, you know, not to cross over into other areas. But that's why, you know, somebody like me can be a little bit more 
uh, empathetic uh, of the uh, the struggles of so many immigrants today because mm. I I've seen firsthand I've walked in the slums uh, of of Central and South America and I know the kind of hardship that they face and I, I can't begrudge them for wanting to to find a better place. But yeah, that, that we moved around a lot. As well, a you just, you just described your parents though, right? Your parents are Cuban dissidents that left in, I assume in, uh, 1959, 1960 or so. Yep. Yep. In the late fifties, my parents came from Cuba. Um, my father was quick to sign up, uh, for the, uh, then covert operation being managed by the central intelligence agency, uh, that eventually led to the, uh, failed invasion of the Bay of Pigs. Um, and uh, but yes, my, my parents came to America fleeing the Cuban Revolution, um, Communist Revolution, and Fidel Castro. So something I don't think almost anyone knows about you, you are a songwriter, or at least you were a professional songwriter, and and not just uh, you know like the rest of us, um, you know, puttering around and coming up with you know terrible poetry set to acoustic guitar. Uh, you worked for some pretty famous artists. I was lucky. I, I've I can look back on my life and and I so I studied biology and I have a master's degree in biology and I've published research nationally and internationally on the Everglades. But I don't consider myself a scientist because uh, the way at least my mentor at the time taught me uh, people that that if you want to call yourself something you've got to be a, an active practitioner in the area and so I, I don't stay current on the literature and I'm certainly not conducting any research so I don't consider myself a scientist similarly uh, I dabbled in music uh, uh, at um, uh, when I began college and I was very fortunate um, developed my uh, enthusiasm for songwriting I don't even know how I got started, but I did, and, and it was a lot of fun. And um, as time progressed, I ended up uh, collaborating with a number of artists that basically played the local scene in Miami. And I had written half of the songs for uh, an album for uh, a friend of mine at the time, and that somehow found its way to uh, a up-and-coming artist uh, in the Estefan Studios, uh, Crescent Moon Studios in Miami, uh, a gentleman by the name of John Cicada, who is a uh, Grammy Award-winning today, uh, very famous and very successful Grammy Award-winning artist, multiple Grammy Award-winning artists. But uh, he heard my music, uh, and I got a call on a Saturday morning out of the blue. And just like you hear in some of those fairy tale stories <laughs> where, uh, you know, an important athlete or an important person calls you on the phone and says, hi, I'm so-and-so, is this you? And it's like, hi, this is John Cicada, <laughs> this is Frank Bernardino. And by that point, I knew who John was because his first album was all over the radio stations and, 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 and uh, videos on MTV. And after I, you know, pulled myself off off the floor and nervously acknowledged who I was, um, he expressed an interest in working with me. And yes, I ended up uh, spending a few years as an also tag uh, um, and had the good fortune to meet uh, um uh, the Estefans, wonderful people, and uh, and worked a lot with John. And actually, one of the songs that he and I worked on together uh, ended up being top ten in the Billboard charts. So wow. that's my my great claim to fame. But quickly, uh, it became untenable. You know, trying to make a living, or I, I never really tried to make a living as a musician. I just wanted to be involved in it. I enjoyed it, but um, work just became uh, the driving force, and and working on. Uh, the Everglades and working at the agency just took up 
way too much time. So eventually I faded out of that professionally. I still write now and then mostly for myself. Uh, and good research on your part because that's not part of my life that I really talk about. Well, you were a well-known teetotaler, and so it seems like you probably not weren't meant for the music industry anyway. <laughs> a lot of people out there uh, in the industry that would probably agree with you. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's right. I I, I I cannot describe the the um, how exciting it is for basically an amateur. A fan, if you will, to be in the studios of some, one of the most successful artists in the world at the time. You know, uh, I mean, Gloria Estefan could not be a more gracious person. And Emilio, I, I can't say enough good things about him. I, I, I Despite the fact that I, I saw myself then and still see myself very much as an amateur songwriter, they were so warm and welcoming and, uh, and, and gave me the opportunity to work in their studios when, in reality, there were a lot of people that they had on the payroll uh, that they could have just as easily said, you know, thank you for your time, but we've got people here that are on the payroll that are dependent upon the songs that they're working on uh, to make a living. But they were nice enough to let me stick around for a few years and work there, and, and I'm forever grateful for that experience. Well, you mentioned being a working biologist, and you studied it at Florida International University, right? That is correct. Right out of there, you did work. You published some work while you were there. Were you working at Miami-Dade County while you were still in school or grad school, or did that come after you finished? No, I, I was, as a matter of fact. My, my, my life's goal was to be basically a park ranger. I was a huge fan going back to music. Uh, John Denver was one of my biggest influences. And I dreamed of, you know, parking myself in some fire tower or in the middle of some western forest and looking at my binoculars to look for a distant puff of smoke and basically living a very isolated life. That was my dream at the time. Uh, circumstances led me to go to Florida International University uh, but I knew that I wanted to work in the outdoors. I had spent a fair amount of my uh, adolescence, uh, and certainly when I came to visit Florida every summer while I was a child, my grandfather and uncle would take me into the Everglades, and, and I loved the Everglades. And so I knew that I wanted to work there. And when I got to school the first semester, I was shocked to find that there were only two professors that were working in Everglades National Park actually doing scientific investigations. And uh, one of them was a botanist, and their study had concluded, and the other one was a herpetologist. And so I immediately volunteered to be a research assistant. And uh, literally from the second week I was in college until seven or eight years later, um, I worked on research in the Everglades. So that spanned both my graduation, uh, my being hired at Miami-Dade County, and into my first few years that I worked for Miami-Dade County's Environmental Resources Management Department, I was doing my, my graduate research in Everglades National Park. And I, and I think that's what makes you different than a lot of us up here. I, I was a political appointee. I had to adopt water as something to to care about, learn about, but you were trained to this. And and I think you draw on that a lot in the in the work that you've done since you left the water management district to to kind of go into uh, private consulting and lobbying. Is that a fair thing to Yeah, to yeah, absolutely. I I think that one of the things that you and I have in common is despite our educational background, I think that there are a lot of people who may not choose to study a science uh, for a career in college, 
but you know, they grew up camping, they grew up fishing, they grew up in right. the outdoors. Uh, they hunted, uh, and and so they have a passion for the outdoors. I don't I don't think that, from my perspective anyway, the passion of individuals who feel their a kinship to the environment as a byproduct of things that they experienced in their life, regardless of whether or not that came about through rigid studies, doesn't diminish what what folks can contribute to the cause, if we will, if we can look at environmentalism and protecting the environment as a cause. Uh, where it does provide me with an interesting perspective, having been trained in it and having done research in it, is that there are a lot of people in the field and in particular in the area of Everglades who can can talk a big game because the basic elements of what drives the Everglades are not difficult to understand. They're not that complex. At a very 30,000-foot level, you know, it's about hydrology. It's about uh, the timing of, mm. of water flows. It's about the quality of the water. So those are simple things that people can understand. You know, we were involved in research that looked at the um, the diversity of the reptile community in response to issues like hydrology, um, habitat composition. Uh, water quality was less of an issue for that for that debate. And so I was always interested in understanding what animals were where in the environment and why. What were their drivers? And so that's that. Those are the studies that drove me. So you know when people talk about you know water quality or or they use a tagline like just move the water south, my mind goes to the next level. Okay, if you're moving the water south, what's that doing to the depth of the water where you're putting it? What does that do to the hydro period, the, the length of time that the water is above ground? What does that do to the vegetative community composition? Because ultimately what is done to the vegetative community is what's going to drive what animals are going to be there. And so to me, it's it's not as simple as just say move the water south because it's going to trigger this chain reaction throughout the entire ecosystem. And so my focus will be a little bit more granular than maybe somebody who hasn't been been trained and, and you're just told, well, the Everglades needs water, so let's just move water. Well, what's right. the water going to do? It doesn't matter. It just needs water. Move it. Are you, and I'm not just talking about the Everglades, are you optimistic about the future of water and, and the environment and these natural systems in Florida? I'm an optimistic person by nature. I, I, I want to believe that we can and will do more and better. It's hard for me to, I can answer the question a different way. I'm nowhere near believing that it's a lost cause. I'm nowhere near believing that good things are not yet ahead of us. As you know, the central theme has always been the same for me. All of these problems are going to take a lot of money to fix. And we really, really, really need to be serious about that commitment. And, and as of yet, I've run into a lot of policymakers who seem to be developing an understanding of that. They seem mm -hmm. to be developing a, a, a more thorough appreciation for the challenge that the state faces. And some of them uh, uh, indicate that they want to do something about it, ultimately whether or not they're able to make the bold strides that are going to be needed, I don't know. You and I have uh, been friends for 20 years. Uh, you've been a, a source of context and information and, um, and education uh, you know, in uh, those early years and, and even beyond. But I would say the last decade, you've been in my ear about something that 
looks and smells and acts like a DOT work plan, but is actually aimed at water. And it took me a while to, to get comfortable with the idea, but you start to see the value in something like that. First, explain the Department of Transportation's work plan, how it's done, what the expectations are of these local areas and regions, and then why that makes sense for, for water. So that conversation has two components. The first of which is the actual work that needs to be done and how it gets done and how it gets prioritized. And then the second half of the conversation is what does it take to make it happen? So uh, talking about the first part, what, what is a work plan? So in the, in, in the transportation world in Florida, we have a process by which uh, metropolitan planning organizations or transportation planning organizations, they've had different names over, uh, over time. But at the local level, they identify the projects that are of most importance to those communities. And those are brought together and, and elevated then to, uh, to, through a couple of rings, through, to, to the regional level and then ultimately to the state level. And um, at each of those levels, the projects are reassembled. They, they, they break down the priorities, they reassemble them, and each region has their priorities based on where they have the greatest needs. Uh, and ultimately, the state approves and blesses that plan. In the case of the transportation world, it's a five-year work plan. And what that does for a local government and what that does for anybody who's working in that space is it allows you to accurately predict and plan for the work that's going to take place. If you're a local government and you're going to be contributing financially to the implementation of that project, you can build it into your budget. But there's a lot of predictability. We know what's going to happen when. It's priority-based. It starts at the local level. It isn't Tallahassee telling the local communities, here are the projects that are most important to you. It's, it's a combination of the projects, the, the, the SIS system, the state and the moral system, uh, priorities that all get cobbled together. And, uh, and it, it, that order and that process repeats itself on an annual basis as the new year, the out years are added and updated in, in, the, in that work plan. In the water resources world, we don't have anything that even comes close to resembling that. In the water resources world, on our best day, we have grant programs where people apply to a water management district. And in some cases, like the Springs program, the water management districts do attempt to prioritize the projects based on what they believe to be the best needs. And then that is sent to Tallahassee and to the department that ultimately decides what of those priorities gets funded. To the second part, what does it take to get the job done? In the case of the transportation work plan, we have as a state a, a funding revenue stream, which is rather predictable, uh, that's been in and around the order of $10 billion a year, uh, roughly about 10 to 13% of the budget if you take the last five or six years, that is dedicated to that purpose. The same is not true in water resources, but for a few projects that very recently or programs that very recently were made programmatic in the land acquisition trust fund mm. process, the amendment one process, but for those five issues, nothing else that's in the budget really has predictability. And, and so take alternative water supply. Let's talk about that. So right. we, we know that the state has an enormous need for water resources all over the state. 
And uh, we know that, that the state is going to require a 14% increase in water supply to meet the growth of the future population. All right, that's uh, a, literally a myriad of projects, the majority of which we may know what it is that we want to do, but we don't know how we're going to pay for it. And so you have the Alternative Water Supply Grant Fund that right. was created back by Paula right. as part of the Water Protection Sustainability Act. And, and it was funded for the first three years. But when we got, had the recession, it was zeroed out. This administration brought it back uh, consistently since Governor DeSantis took office. They've dedicated not less than $40 million a year, sometimes $50 million a year for alternative water supply development. But prior to that, it wasn't funded at all. And so that's an example of how can you build a meaningful program that's going to ensure that the drinking water needs of the state are going to be met if we don't know what water, what funding is going to be there to support the development of those water supplies. Let me ask you this question. In that regard, you look at the DOT work plan. You don't see the same way you do, and this is not a knock on alternative water supply program. It's not a knock on the Springs Restoration and Protection funding, any of that, but at least in its creation. However, no one requires of the city of Bonifay in Holmes County to match the dollars that the state is investing in the the widening of a highway of, of Interstate 10 or uh, or one of the north-south corridors going through the panhandle or anywhere else in the state. However, we do place those those kinds of constraints on the alternative water supply funding of uh, other um, uh, subject to sewer projects. Is that something that your concern about when you look at how do you prioritize things, how do you have predictability, relying on local governments and their ability to come up with those dollars, when in fact, in the end, aren't they all the same taxpayers anyway? Absolutely. I, I, look, we, we know as of this year that the state of Florida over the next 20 years is going to have to uh, invest approximately $132 billion in order to meet our identified needs. That is that the state has done an evaluation, has looked at all of the projects and programs that we currently have in place, and that's how much money we're going to need over the next 20 years if we're going to implement those programs. At the present rate, we're spending less than $2 billion a year towards the implementation of all of those needs. And so it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that we're going to fall way short. And so what I'm a proponent of is if we have a plan for how we're going to address it, one of the things that we need to do is apportion a percentage of that challenge to different entities. So water supply and wastewater, it's my personal belief that that is a local government responsibility, with rare exception where you have an economically disadvantaged community, for which I believe we should do something different. Every other local government has an enterprise fund, a rate structure that is supposed to support the development and the maintenance of the systems that they have built. And so I do not believe that the state should be in the business of helping the local governments pay for that area of infrastructure. Instead, I believe the state focus should be on what I have always referred to as the orphans. And an orphan is a water supply inf or a water infrastructure area that is not supported by an enterprise fund. And thus the funding for it is a bit more capricious, more arbitrary. 
And, and so that's environmental restoration, that's flood control, that's regional flood control, and throw in resilience to boot. So I, do, I believe that if the state sat down to develop a plan for how it was going to address this challenge and these various areas of water infrastructure, it then could decide what percentage of that challenge should be paid by what level of government. But my frustration, Brett, is I don't even think we have a plan. I mean, let me ask you, your former executive director of a water management district, take the Springs program, which by many measures is a successful program, but it's not a plan. Each of the water management districts that provide an avenue for local governments to access dollars in spring sheds, it's it's a year-by-year process, but there isn't a single plan to restore the springs of the state. It's more on a project-by-project basis as the districts prioritize them as opportunities present themselves. Am I wrong? I would put it it a little differently. You have... The, the state has the total maximum daily load uh, that we've established. Uh, we've written statutes surrounding uh, what to do in that case. And we know in that case, whether it be uh, a quality issue, uh, like with the TMDLs, you have a basin management action plan that you're supposed to, uh, to use. And that's your, your guidebook to eliminate that impairment. On the quantity side, it's the minimum flows and minimum levels program. And so uh, when you look at uh, uh, springs and whether they be in the the Suwannee River, Santa Fe uh, River area or Northwest Florida or or further down in Central Florida, when you finish that, you either have uh, a spring that meets, that's above that minimum flow or minimum level, or it doesn't, in which case you need a recovery plan. And if you think it's going to need uh, it's going to have a problem. You have to have a, a prevention strategy for it. So I think those those exist. I think the Springs program itself, at least from our perspective in in Northwest, was how do we take those not just B map water bodies because we had those in Wakulla Spring and Jackson Blue Spring in Jackson County, but we also had other springs that were outstanding Florida Springs and other ones that were not. Where on the Holmes Creek uh, is a good example where we want to to find places that are worth protecting. Sometimes that means acquisition around that place. Uh, And sometimes it means working with farmers in a basin to to try to lessen the amount of quantity uh, of water being used or uh, limit the amount of of fertilizer that's being used. And and so you work with them. And so the, the, the guideposts are there and there is some rhyme to it in terms of the way that the department and by department, I mean the Florida Department of Environmental Protection, and they have a plan that goes out four or five years or at least placeholders. You have some things that are extending and some things that are kind of one offs. But I think the greatest weakness in in that is it relies on the cooperator side of the equation too much. And so when you look at choosing projects it could be wakala county or someplace else you you can only do what your what your cooperator what your partner is willing and able to accomplish and so if you're waiting on them and it doesn't matter if you know you're talking about septic tank problems in biscayne bay or ag issues in north central florida or septic tanks and 
ag issues in this part of the state. If you're just relying on those partners, they're, they're stuck like the rest of us. And so from, from my perspective is, is, is maybe looking at that, what you were talking about, but in a slightly different way, which is, I think that the state has said it's, it's water quality priorities quite plainly in law, but they're the state's priorities. And so, you know, with the DOT work plan, that comes up from local governments, but it also includes state priorities in it as well. And the state has decided that they're going to do that. There are no laws that say that they have to uh, widen a particular road in Holmes County in Northwest Florida, but there are laws that we've written to, you know, to deal with water quality issues. Yeah, but the difference it speaks to the second component of it, which is the funding. In the work plan, they know they're going to get money. Right. They, they can reasonably expect that they're going to get their $10 billion a year. Right. And, and now we're up to $12 billion, but, you know, that they're going to get that sum of money. We don't have that certainty in the water world. The programs that are part of the LATF formula do, but everything beyond that does not. Right. And, and even even the Springs program, and, and, the, and I agree with you, I think the framework exists there to have a plan to get the job done. But I think that there's so many variables that are part of that plan, not the least of which being the most important funding that are not something that you can rely upon, you know, consistently for most of the programs in the state that then weaken uh, or erode away the confidence of the public to believe that we're going to accomplish anything by any particular time. So my mission, the latter part of my career, has been dedicated to educating policymakers on the gross inadequacies of our funding for water infrastructure in general in the hopes that they would make enough of a commitment that that barrier gets removed. It's a hard thing to to ask, though, isn't it? And I agree with you. I'm going to preface what I'm going to say by saying I agree with you. But you can't say that this administration, this legislature, the last administration— the last legislature and the one before that and the one before that, each one has built on the last in terms of water quality issues, whether you're talking about the Everglades or now when you talk about springs, septic to sewer issues, the Indian River Lagoon, Biscayne Bay. Objectively, they've invested more money than ever before, sometimes exponentially more money than ever before. But I, I, but I take your point that, that even though that's true, that doesn't mean that we hit our targets on time. My criticism of of past administrations, and to to whatever extent I want to criticize the current administration and legislature, isn't that they're not doing more. All of them have done more. It's that without understanding what the without being able to openly acknowledge what the need is, they're not doing enough. You've heard me, I lecture about this all over the state, and every time that I talk and, and, and ask an audience of, of local government officials or community activists or whoever it is that I'm lecturing with at the time, and I always say the same thing, guess what percentage of the state revenues are dedicated on an annual basis to water resource protection? And, and right now I have a 17 years that I've been tracking the, the, and dissecting the state budget. And the average over that period of time is about seven tenths of one percent, and jaws always drop because when I when I ask the question and oh five percent six percent those that you know know that I'm going to hit a low number will go oh two percent when I say no the number seven tenths of one percent 
they go like, holy cow, that's nothing. And then I say, okay, well, by comparison, what do you think the number is for transportation infrastructure? Again, another worthy area of, of investment by the state uh, tied to the economy and, and everything else. And, and when they learn that that on average is about 10 to 11%, then I ask the question, to the extent that our budget is a reflection of our values, are we saying that roads are 10 times more important than water? I don't think there's anywhere that anyone would agree that that's true, but our spending certainly says that that's true. Well, Frank, I'll have to have you back all the way from across the office here um, on the on the show. Uh, and I think we will. And so maybe by then some of those discussions may have taken place. I can only hope so. How can people get a hold of you when you're not in the Capitol or on the golf course at the moment? Well, I believe all of us can be found through our uh, AnfieldFlorida.com website for our firm, www.AnfieldFlorida.com. And uh, probably that's the best way to get a hold of me. Sounds good. Frank Bernardino, thank you for joining me. Thanks again to Frank Bernardino for joining me on the podcast. You've been listening to Water for Fighting. You can reach me at flwaterpod at gmail.com or on Twitter and Instagram at flwaterpod with your comments and suggestions for who and or what you'd like to know more about. This podcast is produced by Lonely Fox Studios. Thanks to Carl Sorn for making the best of what he had to work with and to David Barfield for the amazing graphics as well as technical assistance. A very special thank you goes out to Bo Spring from the Bo Spring Band for giving permission to use his music for the podcast. The song is called Doing Work for Free, and you should check it out wherever music is sold. I'm your host, Brett Cyphers. Join me next time for another conversation with someone who has helped shape water policy in the Sunshine State. Until then, keep your whiskey close and your water closer. 